you want to learn more about effective management, head over to madsingers.com and sign up for my free management training. Welcome to the Mad Singers Management Podcast from madsingers.com, where entrepreneurs and business managers learn and share. If you like the show, don't forget to leave a review. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Mad Singers Management Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Erika Michalski. Welcome, Erika. Thank you. So glad to be here with you this morning, this afternoon, this evening, depending on what time you're listening. Well, yeah, all around the world, we are broadcasting worldwide, so uh, it could be whenever. So, how are you? I am entering the new year with enthusiasm, and uh, that feels pretty good. Sometimes that's harder to do than others. I'm, awesome. I'm great. How are you? I am fantastic. Fantastic. I'm super excited to talk to you today because we have some interesting topics in mind. But before we jump into all of that, would you mind giving the audience a little bit of an idea of who you are and how you ended up in this crazy place you are in right now? Sure. The 5,000 foot view is I am a consultant now. I work in the consulting space. I run my own company called Strategically Authentic. I have a passion for authenticity, a passion for empowering other people to show up as they are and see what they can do, see what they're capable of, and to leverage that as they move towards the next thing. Um, I also love strategic planning, which most people don't. So that's one of those fun party party tricks is to show up saying I love strategic planning. Um, my background is actually in nonprofit and higher education. My work um, prior to being in the consultant space was I ran a de department for a nonprofit for a couple of years and then divisions and departments across university campuses in the United States. Um, my background is in education. Um, I started in early childhood education and my doctorate ultimately was in adult learning theory. So I like to joke that I am equipped to educate anyone from arrival to departure on the planet. How that shows up um, varies from event to event, but it turns out my preschool education and my early childhood education background is as useful in a corporate boardroom as some of the other work that I've done. So we're all humans and we all want to be seen and heard and valued. And that starts in the beginning and, and never really stops. So my work is rooted in taking all of these theoretical principles and turning them into practical, useful tools to help people feel seen and heard and valued in the ways that they need to to be successful. Well, you mentioned the uh, authenticity and um, yeah, I, I think that's a couple of things on that. One is definitely a buzzword at the moment. So that's definitely here. A few people talk about it, but what is it to you? Why is it important and why should managers care about it? It is a buzzword. It's heavily trendy, um, but the word's been around for a couple hundred years. So it's not that new. Um, it's the idea that your contributions will be most effective and your existence will be most impactful as yourself, not a diluted version of someone else. When I talk with folks about authenticity, I talk about an authentic definition of success, for example, because if you're working towards a definition of success that someone has projected onto you, you'd be really good at this. Or culturally around you, everyone is chasing the same carrot. So you think you're supposed to chase that carrot. What happens is you get there to that end point of satisfaction that you've been pursuing and you look around 
and you realize you don't care that you're there and you don't want to be there and you've wasted time pursuing a carrot you don't care about. So authenticity invites you to be more reflective and intentional about choices in your personal life and your professional life and to release that comparative nature of how fast someone else is chasing a carrot that you don't care about. I love asking people, especially in leadership roles, you know, who they admire, who they respect, what it looks like to be successful. But when we have that conversation, I do individual consulting as well as consulting with corporations and, and businesses and such. But particularly in those individual dialogues, I ask the follow-up question, which is talk to me about the impact that person is having. Because for most individuals I've found, it's getting to that desired impact that really fuels a true authentic definition of success, more so than they have three houses or this kind of car or those kinds of things. Those things all fade and they are usually tied to changing cultural narratives that are dictated by whichever Kardashian shows up with whatever thing. Um, you know, so so inviting a dialogue around authenticity says you are the owner of the direction that you're going and you can respect and honor traits that you've seen in other people, but doing them as yourself will always be easier and more effective. You can respond faster when you're not adding an additional lens or two of how would this other person behave or how would this other person respond to this challenge. So authenticity is the decision to learn from other people, but not necessarily seek to emulate them. Yep. I love that, that uh, I, I spent a lot of time talking about people and their motivations as well. And uh, while there's definitely some people that are motivated by money and what that brings, vast majority is not, right? So figuring out like what your motivations are and yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, yeah, I love the concept. So um, yeah, uh, so in, in terms of teaching people about authenticity and, and teach them how to be themselves, what specifically do you focus on? Like, is it mostly just helping them understand who they are or like, how do you, how do you get to that point? It depends on how they show up. Just like anything else. Um, if you have been exposed to 20 years of terrible leadership, it takes a while to figure out your authentic leadership style because you have only seen bad representations or you've seen only really good ones, but they're not really good ones that feel genuine to you. So part of it is about, what feels good when you're doing it in a meeting or when you're having conversations, how does it feel at the end of the day? How do those behaviors feel? And I know you love to look at people's behaviors and decision-making and, and the choices and how they show up. So it's, what does that feel like? Another layer that often gets missed is people silo the dialogue of an authentic personal life, an authentic professional life, and they're pursuing, and sometimes the roads are going in opposite directions and they've never stepped back to say, oh, if I'm pursuing success as a professional, I wanna be this by the time I'm 30, or I wanna have published this many things or that sort of thing. But if I'm pursuing my authentic personal life, I wanna have you know, these following things in place. Sometimes we, we can't do both concurrently, but we've never looked at the two timelines under the guise that they're both our singular timeline. So that conversation is often tricky because I see incredibly aspirational young professionals a lot who come to the table with this fantastic list 
of things. And I love these lists. I love ambition, please. I was the youngest associate dean in the history of the institution that I worked for. I love ambition, bring it on. But when your ambition clouds your ability to recognize your holistic life, what happens is you still can't get to that point of satisfaction. And when things get hard, something crumbles because you've written your personal definition in stone and your professional definition in stone, but you forgot that you only had one rock. Let me be a little bit controversial here. So I think some people are generally more, what's the right word, more successful um, being a little bit unhappy. So particularly when you look at very competitive people, my experience is that in a lot of cases, their unhappiness is actually what drives them. Because the fact that they always, you know, they're always looking for more, they always want what's next and the fact that they they aren't getting satisfied actually in my experience helps them keep pushing for things now you can always argue if that's what they should really be doing and all that kind of stuff but but uh, with very competitive people in particular i see that being quite the case in a lot of times well that brings up two different thoughts one are they pushing because they want to or are they pushing because they think they're supposed to? So we're unhappy because sometimes we're chasing things we don't care about. That goes back to the original piece. If you don't want to keep climbing the ladder and you continue to climb or you get promoted and those sorts of things, we have become weirdly obsessed with the idea that you're not allowed to be content where you are and that you should always be trying to go somewhere else. Some people don't want to do that. And that's okay, but it gets a bad rap for wanting to be where you are. You can grow in your depth and breadth of impact in a role instead of continuing to climb the ladder. Some people don't ever want to be the CEO of a company and that's okay, but we act like it's not. So some of that pursuit is problematic because we think we're supposed to keep pushing and pushing and pushing because the idea that we would be content seems flawed or like we're not ambitious enough. Because again, the cultural norm is that ambition is right, correct? Right? Yeah, I, I, I totally agree on that one. So what I would say is, Generally, the people who are extremely competitive by nature are usually the ones who want to keep climbing the ladder, keep building or keep keep pushing things, right? And they are often the ones that uh, do drive the goals they want. I, I think actually the, the problem I see in most cases with people who pursue things that they aren't really looking for is actually people who try and emulate those people. Because sure. what, hap- what happens is in a lot of our society, it's the really competitive people. It's those famous people like Elon Musk and Steve Jobs and all these people. It's the people that a lot of individuals look up to, right? And they think they have to be like them. And actually, my, my favorite management book in the whole world um, is called First Break All the Rules. Um, and the author skips me right now. But basically, the whole concept of it is... Um, basically learning your leadership style and learning how to utilize your strength to be a leader. Because again, most people look at these famous individuals and, you know, if you're not super assertive, if you're not uh, necessarily an asshole that's willing to call (laughs) employees at 3 a.m. in the morning and shout at them if they don't answer after 10 seconds or whatever, you know, you, 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 you probably don't fit into that style of how to do things, right? Sure. Um, so, but, but, so generally, when I, when I see that the people that I see, the, the very competitive people is usually the ones that do want to climb the ladder and are super eager for the money, right? Sorry, so I actually interrupted you. To that. 
I interrupted I, you. So you said that's okay. No, that's okay. That's perfect because you just handed me the greatest softball. Um, I introduced myself talking about my passion for authenticity. What I neglected to mention is for fun, I do research in neuroscience spaces. So um, we will segue briefly into the newest research around dopamine and highly dopaminergic people. The reality is this, and this is where we see it in entrepreneurs more than a lot of other populations. And I have a great book that I can reference. It's actually sitting in a pile just behind me because I was building some content for a a series that I'm doing. Um, But there's a book called The Molecule of More, fairly new research, and it unteaches or it overhauls a lot of what we thought we knew, particularly about dopamine. Historically, and even now we talk about the satisfaction of dopamine that you get dopamine hits and people use social media a lot as that metric that we go in and we get the likes and we get a dopamine hit. And I hear that phrase dopamine hit all the time. The newest research actually tells us that dopamine in and of itself is unsatisfiable. Dopamine as a molecule, as a neurotransmitter is only interested in the pursuit. So highly dopaminergic people get to their endpoint and aren't satisfied because they're still dopaminergically driven. If you cannot train your brain to convert into the here and now to be present and to to benefit from some of the other neurological molecules happening in your brain, what happens is you only ever pursue. This is why some folks, when we, if we take it briefly into the personal space, this is why some folks are perpetually um, interested in new relationships because once they have established the relationship, the dopamine doesn't care because it doesn't care about being satisfied. It cares about pursuing more and new and different. So that quality of being highly dopaminergic can absolutely be found in those spaces of people who are constantly pursuing more. There are a lot of opinions about if that should be regulated or if it is okay, as long as you can, can recognize you're essentially never going to be satisfied if you choose not to regulate your highly dopaminergic state. But that idea that you were talking about is is rooted in the fact that for some people, they are driven more by this thing that is legitimately, scientifically, research-backed, not satisfiable. So not ever getting to a point of satisfaction means you're constantly pursuing it because that's how you're wired. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's very interesting, right? Because what what I find most interesting about, and I really like that research, but what I find most interesting is like when you look at a lot of sports stars and like some of the most famous people, everyone looks at them and say, wow, they must be so happy because they're so rich and they're so good and they're so perfect. And because they're never satisfied and because they keep pushing for that extra percent, because they keep pushing, um, fundamentally a lot of them are not actually that happy and it's it's interesting because you know most people very mistakenly think that it's all about the money and uh, all that sort of stuff and it's for me it's probably the best example of showing that life is definitely not about the money itself because money won't make you happy um interestingly enough i'm on the totally opposite end of the scale i am uh, ridiculously comfortable with pretty much whatever. Um, and I'm always like a 
I, I say retardedly happy, that's probably the wrong word, but I am I am always extremely happy and, and haven't understood the whole concept of unhappiness really. Um, but but I think the key thing is that uh, when you're looking at these people that are that are so successful and like my, my experience when I look at them is just that they become so successful just because they're not happy. Because the second they get satisfaction, the second they feel, oh, I made it, then they totally just lose the, the, the drive, right? Well, and some of them over time begin to reinvent their sense of self tied to success when they become successful. And it's not usually their choice. It's because everyone, if you think about individuals, um, I worked in collegiate athletics at one point in my life. And so I worked with a lot of redshirted college freshmen who had big dreams of being pro athletes. And I was there on the academic side to make sure they were eligible to play in the, the bowl game of the year or, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and I sat with a lot of folks who had these big ideas and some of them were successful. Some of my athletes would come in and say, Hey, when you play Madden, you can be me because I, you know, like different things. And, and, um, I would see them as they would go on to play in the NFL and have these careers. And it was really fun, but having relationships with some of those individuals from redshirted freshmen, nobody, the people who knew them were their local high school newspaper. Right. And the evolution of being known for a thing, if you are not in a stable environment, if you are not doing the work outside of being known for that singular thing to have an actual sense of self. And if you think about developmentally, these were young men, 18 to 23. So prefrontal cortex, not even fully developed. We know this science tells us they weren't all the way there yet. And, and in that peak developmental phase, external sources were telling them who they were. So if you become a metric of achievement and that's who people recognize and define you as, it takes more work to decide who you are authentically. And if you don't do that work, if no one is there helping you do that work, if no one is having a conversation with you about who you actually are, and instead is having a conversation with you about how fast you can run, how far you can throw that ball, whether you can catch it and also get pummeled, your identity as a human gets lost and becomes your capacity for achievement. And when our capacity for achievement is how we see ourselves, we will feel compelled to achieve more. Just like if my capacity, or because just like my sense of self is, uh, so I'm a pretty compassionate human being. I'm a philanthropic human being. I was raised um, by someone who told me you have to pay your civic rent. You do service. You, you care for other human beings because you're above ground and they're above ground and they need your support. Not because they can do anything for you. Because that's a part of my identity. When I have those opportunities to do more philanthropic worth, work, I do that. The same holds true for achievement, but it looks and feels very different. And my ability to contribute to, and, and I use this because it's easy, my ability to contribute philanthropically will never be impeded. There's always some way I can, can do that. But if your metric of success is achievement and it's anchored to a very specific thing with a lot of pieces you have no control over, unhappiness comes when you no longer know who you are and also things may be crumbling around you and yeah, you don't yeah. have the capacity to build them back up. Definitely seen that a lot of times. So 
Well, I have a couple of things I want to say, but uh, let's start with this one. So when, when you look at most, like let's say very young pop stars, I see exactly what you talk about because you have these young kids at 16, 17, 18, 19, right? And suddenly they're famous, they're rich, they're in front of everyone. And it's so obvious they're not ready for it. They don't know how to handle the money. They don't know how to handle the fame. And what eventually happened is they disappear and then, you know, life goes belly up. Uh, so I, I think we see that like very, very consistent, right? And that, yeah, that ties in exactly. What and if the people thinking. around them aren't noble, that's where the problems happen. Because there are plenty of people, young professionals who are, grounded and successful. You can look at someone like Zendaya who came out of the Disney space. She has been famous or known for a very long time and is still a fairly grounded individual who hasn't imploded in all these ways. And in fact, has advocated for herself when she was attacked. Um, This was a couple of years ago. She was attacked on red carpet because of her appearance, because she made a choice that was um, specific or or tied to African-American heritage. And so she had um, dreadlock hair and it was fantastic. And, and one of the reporters on one of the news shows made a reference about how she probably smelled like Chihuly. And she was this young teenager and she was getting these messages from other people and had the opportunity to either fly off the handle or be supported as she responded with tact and continued her career. That singular moment and how she responded to it could have impacted a lot of things. She's gone on to win the highest possible awards because she's a tremendous human being who's really good at her craft. And there are other individuals who as teens and young adults with that one singular negative feedback from external pop culture, a reporter saying it was Juliana Rancic. I think that's her name. Um, You know, whoever it is saying this thing, some of those pop stars, some of those exact people you're talking about would implode And when that happens, it's usually because no one around them is helping them figure out how to be present and respond. So you're absolutely correct. Without the right support support in place, success is is the dream until it is a nightmare. I mean, that's as as simple as it gets. So, So one area where I see this a lot. So I work with a lot of entrepreneurs and both some younger, but also some 50 plus. And what happens is that they identify so much with their business. The second they sell it and make a lot of money, that's exactly what happens. They totally lose their identity. So many of them, you know, that dreamed of making a sale of making 10 million or 20 million or 50 million or 100 million or whatever. And literally from the minute they do it, they literally lose their identity. And I've seen some scary examples of that happening, right? Sure. And when you lose your identity and have infinite resources or seemingly infinite resources, you can try on all sorts of identities. And some of them are incredibly dangerous. Some of them are erratic. Some of them will erode every relationship you had along the way because that lack of sense of self, that desire to be enmeshed, authenticity, who I am and my business is usually because at no point along the way or somewhere it got lost was the question, who I am when I'm not working? Who am I when, you know, and for some of them, they're like, well, I'm always working. My phone's always on. I take calls. And I get it. I get it. I lived that life for a while. (laughs) And then I set boundaries and I turned my phone off and it was the most liberating thing. But 
if, if you never ask yourself as an entrepreneur, the question, who else am I? Then you teach yourself over time. You are only your work. So it's, it's the responsibility of an individual to decide how to anchor themselves in a broader fashion. Because for, you know, if you have a background in any sort of engineering, a stable base is wide, right? We don't build teeny tiny skinny buildings. There's a reason for that. And so what I see is people forget the need for a stable base. And instead they are, I have two elementary school aged children. And when they were little, we used to build with blocks a lot, standard wooden blocks from, you know, a gajillion years ago that have been passed down through households. They were in my grandparents, you know, like we, we all had them little wooden blocks. If you build a little wooden block tower and you only have one block on the bottom, it doesn't take much as it gets taller. So if your identity is tied to that singular wooden block of success and you keep building on it, keep building on it and you keep having it, that's okay. As long as you know, when it falls, the entirety of it's going to crumble all the way back down to the base. Those with a stable base don't fall to the bottom. That's that's what we need to ask people. And when I work with entrepreneurs and, and folks who are highly ambitious, I ask hard questions that seem really simple to folks who, who are in other spaces, but I ask hard questions like, who are you? <laughs> who do you see yourself as? And if they don't have any answers that aren't tied to work, I know that that dialogue and the support that I provide for them is probably going to be a little different than they were anticipating because falling from a tall, skinny tower is terrifying and it can completely erase any sense of self that people have. Now, the last place where I've seen this quite a lot is with couples that have been together for a long time because they identify as a couple. And if they ever get divorced, occasionally, sometimes one or both of them uh, literally crumble because of the same thing. They have been so identified and they have identified themselves with being this couple. And now suddenly they're not. And I've seen a lot of people where this identity piece as well happens in that scenario exactly as well, right? Sure. Um, with my background in um, human development, I actually taught a course on intimate relations and marriage for a while. So I've had a lot of conversations in that space of what does it look like to, to decide on divorce? What does it look like to go through divorce? And one of those pieces and one of the reasons that that happens is exactly what we've already talked about. If an individual in a relationship chooses to build their identity on that singular base block of being the spouse of someone else, or being the spouse of someone else and being the parent of the children when the children grow up. We, we see an increase in divorce when children leave homes. And that's because one partner may have decided that they are a parent. And then when children go to into their adult lives and they have no longer that piece of identity, they may realize they don't know who they are. And if they try to reinvent themselves, they become a person that is unrecognizable to the other partner. And so depending on the partnership and that sort of thing, there are a lot of layers and we don't have time to unpack all that. But my point is this, just like an entrepreneur in a business whose identity is tied to the singular success of the work, any individual in any relationship, if your identity is tied to a singular point, that's not sustainable. It's just not. 
Awesome. Well, that's super interesting. Super interesting. Um, the last point uh, we talked a little bit about before we actually got started with this podcast was uh, investing in people. And, and this is one of my key things. Obviously, I, I heavily encourage business and organizations in general to invest in particularly their managers because unfortunately, most people don't develop their managers very much. So people development in general, and you had a really solid point on this. So I figured I'd love to know sort of your view on people development and what you see happening a lot. When it comes, well, first, Pete, you're right. People don't invest in, they, well, I would push back and say they invest in their managers, but not in their manager's soft skills, which make them successful managers. They see people who are successful at a task, a responsibility and being on academic campuses. I see this a lot. Um, you can move up an academic ladder and have no ability to manage or work with people, but be really good at a thing. The problem is, that one thing that you're good at often has nothing to do with managing teams. So being good at a thing and then getting promoted because you're good at the thing and given no additional support to be good at the next thing <laughs> is, is useless and ultimately um, can cause discourse and, and departments can erode really quickly when leaders don't know how to lead. Um, but it happens all the time. So we invest in people who are successful without assessing whether that success is an indicator of success in the new type of role. And that's where there's a problematic challenge. And that is, you know, leadership from the top down needs to say, this person is successful and at this one thing and has the potential to grow in these other areas. Let's equip them before we promote them. So one of my big things is training people before we give them new titles. Um, I get on the job learning. I appreciate it, all those things. But if we are not doing ourselves the, the service of equipping them to at least be able to have an impact on day one with that new title, we're creating a rift in our organization about how we see people and we're doing them a disservice. We're asking them to be successful, but we're not setting them up for that. And that doesn't feel fair or appropriate. Um, going back to the feeling seen and heard and valued. I don't value you enough to make sure you're successful, but I see that you're good at this other thing. So I'm going to put you in the role in hope. Hope is not a strategy. I say this a lot. Hope is not a strategy. Now, I'm a huge proponent of hope. My husband went through emergency chemo and was supposed to die. And he just celebrated six years yesterday from when he rang the bell and finished treatment and is still here. So I love hope. We hoped a lot during that time, but hope isn't a leadership strategy. Hope isn't a management strategy. What I also find is a fear of investment in other people because they won't stay. And there's a quote, I wish I had it. I wish I knew who to attribute it to, but there's this, this saying that floats around that says a, you know, a CFO and a president are talking and the president says, what if we invest in them and they leave? And then the response is, what if we don't and they stay? Assuming people are going to be there until they are not. And assuming that you have the opportunity to help them be as successful as they can while they are there and letting go of all the other parts is how you really engage an employee base differently. And we know from research that engaged employees stay. So it isn't this like chicken and an egg, how long will they stay? If I invest in them, will they take their skills somewhere else? No, invest in your people and watch what happens. Because even if they're only there for 18 months, if they're there for 18 months and they're doing the best work that they've done for you, 
that's a valuable 18 months and your bottom line is going to see it. And if they see that they are having an impact, they were invested and they were valued, the conversation about leaving is different. People leave when they don't feel valued. When we invest in them, they feel valued. But that cyclical nature of if we invest in them and then they leave and then we have to invest in new people and all these things, that's very short-sighted. And the larger impact and the culture of investment in your team, the culture of awareness that we want our people to grow while they're with us, whether it's 18 months or five years or 20 years, that changes how we invite people to show up to work. That changes how we invite them to exist in our organization while it's there. And it changes this culture of expectation around growth and development and investing in people because we are capable of doing so. And folks stick around when they feel like they will continue to be invested in. But that, I mean, that begs a completely different conversation, which, which is mandatory professional development versus a tailored professional development curriculum for individuals based on their goals and assessment and, um, you know, definition of success. And that's a different dialogue for a different day, but forced professional development that is an anchor to specific growth that people need when it isn't tied to needs assessment and and that sort of thing. Somebody read a book. So we all have to sit in a meeting about it. That professional development, that's not professional development. That's not investing in your people. That's driving them bananas and impeding their ability to get work done. So meaningful, intentional professional development. When we're talking about investing in people, when you say invest in your people, I'm talking about genuine, authentic investment. And that is not book club unless it is done well. That is not one-day retreats unless they are done well with intention, rooted in meaningful needs assessment for the actual people. Trendy professional development drives me bonkers because it's usually flat and it's usually just generic enough for everyone to feel like it's a waste of time. This is why people don't like seeing professional development meetings on their calendar. Intentional professional development, the idea of actually investing in people changes cultures and invites people to stay longer. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. I love your, your first point. It's, it's something I always say is, um, like you have this typical saying, if this, the best salesman won't necessarily make the best sales manager or the best engineer won't necessarily make the best engineering manager. So the way I turn that around is I say, if, if someone has the skills and the personality to learn how to be the best engineer or to learn how to be the best sales manager, they can also, uh, best salesperson, they can also learn how to become a good manager with the right tools and support and learning and so on, right? Because being the top of literally any field, like that's not an easy thing. It's not just like, you don't just walk in and become the best salesman overnight, right? Like it, it takes time, it takes effort, it takes dedication and so on and so forth. And the point is if people have that already, with the right training and the right skill, uh, sort of the right support, they can definitely become a great manager as well. However, it doesn't happen overnight. Like it's not just promoting them and then suddenly they're magically great, right? Like that's, yeah. And they have to want to. If they don't care about growing as a manager, you can give them all the skills and resources and the personal coach and whatever else you want. Look, I have been hired and contracted to personally coach people who are great at a thing to be great at leading a team of people doing that thing. Some of them don't care about supporting other people. 
I can give them every tip and trick and, and walk them through and tell them how to design the best meetings and all, you know, whatever it is you can too, because I know you're working in this space, but you've met those people who are capable and don't care. And if they don't care, you can't, at the end of the day, you can't force someone to care about a role that they're playing. So then ultimately what you have is a sense of discourse and dissatisfaction for all the people who have to report to someone who is overtly not interested in them. Yeah, I, 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 I agree to a certain extent. However, what I see the most is that the reason why people aren't interested, again, is often I see it as a chicken and egg thing. They haven't got the training. Because what often happens, like if you start with a brand new thing, if someone says, hey, you know, Erica, go do marketing. If you know nothing about it and you start looking at it and you're like, wow, that looks wildly complicated. I don't know what I'm doing. That is not my thing. Right. So a lot of the time what I see is that uh, and I'm, I work with a lot of organizations where, you know, you have people that have been put into these managerial positions and they're just like they have no idea what they're doing. Right. Um, but my experience is when you actually give them the training, when you actually give them the support, um, that attitude changes a lot. Right. And I, I, I would say I've, I've, I've had probably at least 50 people come to me and say, I don't want to manage people. I don't enjoy doing it. Right. And with the right training and the right support have totally turned around and said, you know, I love it now. Right. So I, I totally agree. There's definitely people and, and there's people in all organizations with a bad attitude and a bad sure. mentality in, in the sense of, you know, totally negative and all that kind of stuff. And, and if you first have a bad attitude, that's definitely a harder thing to change. Right. Uh, completely. Um, but, but I do see a lot of people that kind of, they, they don't feel secure in this thing. And, and particularly like engineers, for example, if they're so used to engineering and, and they're so used to being an expert and knowing every bit, it's so difficult for them to go into something they know nothing about and do it really well, right? Sure. Well, similarly, so engineering is a great example. I happen to be married to a molecular virologist. So a elite scientist working in his field. And you see that in the, in the sciences all the time. So he works at a, a biotech firm doing, he's been busy with COVID for the past two years, but prior to that was working on cancer treatments that were cell specific and all these things. But in the organization with the work that he does, it's the same. You have some folks who are really good at the science side, but you need someone to lead a team of scientists and you have to find a person who wants to do that. Some folks don't want to. And I go back to, if you love bench work in science, if you, if that's what you love to do, the experiments is where your heart is and someone pulls you up the ladder, you may be able to do it well, but you won't necessarily be satisfied in that work because it's not what you want to be doing. And sometimes that can be tricky. The other layer is recognizing, and, and this doesn't happen. This happens more in other spaces, but I would say in some of the science spaces, engineering, um, pharmacy, some of these other places. Um, if we don't tell people the potential we see in them when we promote them, they also don't have a reason to care because it feels arbitrary. If we say you're good at this thing and I'm promoting you, quickly they realize that thing has nothing to do with managing people, right? But if we say you're good at this thing and we've noticed, and it doesn't have to be a ton of things that you see, but when you communicate potential in someone as you promote them, it changes what you're talking about, which is this, I don't want to manage people, but I get to a point where I do. That communication from leaders above 
who give people clarity around the potential that they see also changes a desire to grow. It invites a desire to care differently. So when those messages are communicated effectively, even the least interested leader is more likely to become a leader if they have clarity around why they were put in that role. This is exactly what I also teach when it comes to delegation, um, because delegation is very much the same thing, right? So Absolutely. most people are like, hey, you know, here's a task. The, the one thing I always say is like, tell people why you're giving them th- that task. Tell them why you think they're going to be awesome at it. Tell them why that one responsibility is ending in the lap. And, you know, it's a totally different scenario when you start doing that, right? Absolutely. And if it's new to them, along with telling them why you see the capacity, you say, I also realize this is a new task and I'll be available if you hit a, hit a question. Because when we forget to say, I realize this is new to you. I realize this is going to be a different type of challenge. And when we forget to acknowledge that, some folks are terrified of admitting when they're stuck because they think they were given something with the idea that they'll be an expert at it rather than capable of it. There are lots of people who are incredibly capable who didn't start out as experts. And when we delegate, or even when we promote someone into a leadership role, it's the same, you're right, they're very similar dynamics. When I say, I think that you will be capable of this task, it's similar to these things that you've done in the past. You have a skill set that you can draw from. You're going to encounter some new challenges. I'm here to help you as you encounter those challenges. It's incredibly powerful to remind people that you know, as a supporter of them, as a leader of them, as, as someone they report to, you know they're going to hit things. There may be a problem. There may be a challenge because then they feel allowed to talk to you about the problems because there's inevitably going to be those problems. And when we invite people to go sit on an island and do their best, we're setting them up for failure or at best mediocrity, right? So invite them instead to be in a space where you are available. They may not need you the whole time, but it changes the mindset knowing that you're available. Erica, super duper interesting conversation. I really thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, before we finish off, any sort of last resources or anything you'd recommend people to take a look at or yeah, anything? Oh my goodness. Um, that list is so long. That's a tricky question for a singular resource. I think the more, honestly, Adam Grant just came out with a really great book during the pandemic called Think Again. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of folks in this space, whether you're new to the space or not, one of the greatest messages from that text is best practices are problematic because they stop people from continuing to think about how else. So I love that book. I think it's a great book, Um, but even that theme from that book and Adam Grant is very active in lots of spaces. And so, you know, you can get a lot of content from him without ever going to Wharton. The idea that you become comfortable because things are successful, because things are working is one of the most dangerous places to be. Comfortably successful isn't sustainable. And so continuing to explore how to grow, how to change, what's working and analyzing why it's working, not the what, but the why. And Simon Sinek talks about know your why. This is a different version of your why. Why is this training working? 
for this individual? Why is this training working for this cohort? Why? How do we translate the whys instead of the whats? And when you have best practices, you become so anchored to the whats that when you have a different type of dynamic, they no longer work. Yeah. Totally makes sense. Totally makes sense. Erica, awesome to have you on here. If people are eager to connect with you, what's the best way to do so? They can come find my website. Um, Strategically authentic is too many letters for people to type. So when we built my website, it is stratauth, www.stratauth.com because we live in a world of efficiency. And so I love you all and your efficient fingers. And I wanted to honor that. Also on Instagram, I'm incredibly active. I share a ton of content. My Instagram handle is um, at consultant Barbie. We did not talk about why I have gone in that direction, but if you think about authenticity, Barbie went to space in pink glitter. If that's not authenticity, I don't know what is. Um, So you can come find me there. I am pretty active with providing content in ideas about professional development and strategic planning there. So those are the best ways to find me. Um, and if there's something you heard that you want to talk about, come find me. Let's do it. Awesome. Thank you very, very much. That was uh, awesome talking. And uh, yeah, I hope the audience enjoyed it as much as I did. Thank you. What a great conversation in lots of different directions. How fun. Definitely. Definitely. To the audience, thank you very much for listening all the way to the end. We will be back again next week. Thank you for listening to the Mad Singers Management Podcast. Please leave a review. It means the world to us. You can also learn more about management at madsingers.com.